All right, as I mentioned, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 8 this morning. Chapter 8 focuses on the dedication of the temple. Now that the temple construction is complete, we spent the last two weeks looking at the temple and all that it represented. And so now, chapter 8 focuses on the dedication of the temple, and there is a ton of stuff in this passage. So I'm going to break chapter 8 down. We've been trying to do about a chapter a week, and that's been... For the most part, it's worked out fairly well. But chapter 8, I think if we were to try to do all of chapter 8 into one week, I think we would miss a lot. So we're going to break it down into three sections. The first is what we're handling today. It's the first 21 verses. It focuses on Solomon bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies and then the presence of the Lord coming down upon the temple. Verses 22 through 53 we'll cover next week, and that covers Solomon's prayer of dedication, and that is a phenomenal passage. I can't wait to get into that with you next week. And then the last chunk, verses 54 through 66, is when Solomon then turns after his prayer and he focuses on Israel and does what we would refer to as a benediction of Israel. And so we're going to, again, break this down into three pieces. So let's go ahead and look at our... our passage for this morning, the first 21 verses. Um, We're going to break this down into a few segments as well. The first is when Solomon dedicates the temple on what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's look at the first two verses of chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is in the seventh month. Now one of the things that's not immediately obvious when we look at this passage is that Solomon waited 11 months to dedicate the temple by moving the Ark and the contents from the um, tabernacle into it. Eleven months. Now, it's not not real clear here as you look at that until you start to do a little bit of math and you look at the months and how they're they're arranged. But according to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, it says that the temple was completed in the eighth month of the year, which was referred to as Bull, B-U-L. Now, chapter 8, verse 2 here, you notice it says that he dedicated the temple in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So the way we know this took 11 months was because in the eighth month, they finished the temple, but he dedicated it in the seventh month. So either he had a time machine and went back a month, or he waited a full year to dedicate it in the seventh month, which is obviously what happened here. So the question is, why would Solomon wait 11 months to do this? I mean, it took him seven months to build the temple. You would think there'd be a tremendous amount of excitement and wanting to dedicate this and start using it as soon as the temple is completed, but instead he waits 11 months. Well, it appears that the reason was because he specifically wanted to dedicate the temple at something called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Notice that in verse 2 it says, All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast. It's just three words. At the feast. doesn't tell us what feast it is. Now, if you jump to the end of chapter 8, verses 65 and 66, it says, So Solomon observed the feast at that time, 
and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God, for seven days and seven more days, even fourteen days. So he celebrated at the feast, we're told. Doesn't tell us again what feast it is. And it says that he celebrated for seven days, and there was an eighth day, and then he celebrated seven more days before he sent the people home. So we, we know that this feast, this particular feast here, lasted for two weeks. But it's broken down, and there's a reason why it's listed as seven days, then the eighth, and then seven days. In other words, two one-week periods. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king. This is the eighth day after the second week, if that makes sense. Then they went to their tents. Get that? They went to their tents. Not back to their homes. They went to their tents. Joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had sworn to David, his servant, and Israel, his people. And so we have these generic references to doing this at the feast. And we have this reference to them going back to their tents after the eight days. Now this last reference to them living in tents during this time indicates that this was the Feast of Tabernacles because this was the only feast where they were commanded to live in tents. So we know that this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Plus we know that it's a Feast of Tabernacles because it was in the seventh month of the year. That's when the Feast of Tabernacles was held. So that then I think leads us to another question. Why would Solomon choose this particular feast on which to dedicate the temple? Why would Solomon wait 11 months specifically for the Feast of Tabernacles to dedicate the temple when there were other feasts that came sooner. Remember, he's in the eighth month. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last of seven feasts. So there were six other feasts that he could have taken advantage of. Why didn't he do that? There were seven annual feasts commanded by the Lord, but only three of them required all of Israel, all of the men, to come to where the tabernacle was or a central place of worship. So he can narrow down the seven feasts into three where all Israel came together. So logistically, it would make sense that Solomon would choose one of those three feasts. So it made logical sense that he would choose one of them. But why didn't he choose the two other annual feasts that came before this one? That would seem to fit the bill logistically as well. But he didn't do that. He didn't choose the Feast of Unleavened Bread... He didn't choose the Feast of Weeks, both of which required all Israel to come together. They were before this one. He could have done it earlier. But instead, he sort of hopped over those two, and he waited 11 months until the Feast of Tabernacles came. So the more I began to look into this, the more intrigued I became. And it was one of those things where it's almost a bit of a rabbit trail, where you start down the trail and you don't know if it's going to have a payoff or not. But I began to wonder about this. I first thought, well, why doesn't he mention the feast here? Well, he gives us certain details, and is there enough there to figure out what feast this is? And so again, just like I've laid out for you here, after doing my my research and digging, it's really clear that this was the Feast of Tabernacles. So in my mind, all of a sudden, I sort of go, well, well, why? didn't make sense to wait so long. I think there's a theological reason why dedicating the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles was so important to Solomon. These seven annual feasts, actually, if you look at them, were bookended by events that directly relate to the Exodus. And I think that's key here. The first two festivals of the year, the feasts, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, happened in the beginning of the year, and they marked the beginning of the Exodus. If you remember, both the um, Passover 
Passover, you know, they had to put the blood above their doorposts when God killed all of the first sons of Egypt and he protected the Israelites by putting the blood above the doorposts. Then they had the, unle- the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They had to prepare to leave Egypt rapidly and so they couldn't wait for the bread to rise and so they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those two were at the beginning of the Exodus. The last festival, the Feast of Booths, happened in late fall and it was supposed to remind Israel of their time wandering in the wilderness. It's when God himself lived temporarily in the tabernacle among Israel. And they, would, they had to live in tents. They didn't have homes. And so you have this interesting um, thing that happens. You've got the first two feasts that sort of inaugurate the Exodus. The feasts that are in between those two feasts and the seventh feast at the end focused on God's goodness and provision while they were in the wilderness. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, the last feast of the year, celebrated God's presence living among them. And he did that for 40 years in the wilderness. So you've got these seven feasts all have a connection to the Exodus in some respects, and the first two and the last one bookend that event. Now in some respects, even though the Exodus had technically ended when Joshua had come into the land, not all of the promises that God made during the Exodus had come to fruition yet. They were still waiting to be fulfilled. He promised them rest from their enemies when they came into the land. That didn't happen until David became king. So just prior to where we're at today with Solomon. God also promised that he would choose a place to put his name to dwell, a city that would be within the borders of Israel. Well, that has just come to fruition here where he's chosen Jerusalem for that. That was done under David and Solomon as well. A third promise, or a third thing that we relate to this, is that throughout all of Israel's history up until this point, God lived in a temporary tabernacle, if you will. God had promised that he would designate a place, a city, to put his name and would have a permanent temple built there. So you have these three promises that God had made that up until David and Solomon had not been complete. And all of a sudden now with Solomon, we see the culmination of all three of those. And in many respects, you can now say that the Exodus is complete because God has fulfilled all of his promises. So even though Israel had been in the land for 400 years, none of those things had fully come to fruition until right here, right now, with Solomon. And so you look at this Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates God living among Israel, but living in tents, even the Lord himself living in a temporary tabernacle, all ends right here, right now, with a permanent dwelling in a permanent city where God will take up residence right then, right there. This Feast of Tabernacles is actually the perfect time to dedicate the temple. It served to remind Israel not just of the time they wandered in the wilderness, but also that God lives among them. I want you to go ahead and jump to um, Exodus chapter 29 as sort of a precursor to what we see here. Exodus chapter 29, verse 42. Is that right? Exodus chapter 29, verse 42 through 46, I believe, is a passage I'm looking at here. 
It shall be a continual burnt offering through your generations at the doorway to the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. What is this? He's talking about the tabernacle there. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will also consecrate Aaron and the sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the purpose of the tabernacle was to, remember, was to remind Israel that Lord, the Lord would dwell among Israel. What happens now under Solomon is that that temporary tabernacle is replaced by a permanent temple. Because God has chosen to establish Jerusalem in many respects as his eternal earthly dwelling place. You go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, and what do we find? The new Jerusalem. God and his son dwelling among his people there. So what better time to celebrate the consecration of the temple than the Feast of Tabernacles? Perfect time. So what would we do with this? What's our takeaway on this? You know, what's interesting to me is that um, many scholars, as you look at the meaning behind the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll ask, are there other significances to some of these feasts and what they truly represent? We have outright what the Bible describes itself, which is to remind Israel of God's presence among them as they wandered in the wilderness. But most scholars believe that the Feast of Tabernacles also foreshadows the coming of the Messiah. So they would say that it foreshadows the first coming. Think about this. John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, says this. The Word became flesh, it's referring to Christ, and dwelt among us. Now what's interesting about that is there are at least 19 or 20 different words for dwell that John could have used. But he used a very weird one. If you were to do a more literal translation of that, it says that the word became flesh and tented or tabernacled among us. It's rather interesting. Why would John do that? Again, any number of words. We don't know for sure, but many scholars look to that and say that what John was doing was tying that back to the Feast of Tabernacles saying that the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, living in booths, reminded Israel that Lord, the Lord had come to live among them. And he now uses some of that very same language to say that the Lord has now taken on human flesh and tented, dwelt among us. Now again, that's somewhat speculative, but I think there's good reason to believe that. This is one of those things where I need to trust men that are smarter than me. And so I would take what many scholars say about that and say they're probably onto something. They also believe that the Feast of Tabernacles foreshadows the second coming of Christ, the time when God would permanently send his son back, if you will, would take up residence here permanently and dwell among his people. Revelation chapter 21. Why don't you jump there with me? And again, we have the same use of this word. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is describing the new heavens and new earth. Happens after the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. 
This is what takes us into eternity. You know, this, this idea of spend eternity in God with heaven really isn't theologically accurate because we don't spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. We spend eternity with the Lord right here on earth in a new heavens and a new earth. And so we see this, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look at this, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell, he will tabernacle among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. I don't think that's a mistake. I think John uses the language of the Feast of Tabernacles to tie it all together. What we find in the Old Testament is that God dwelt in a, in a fabric tent, a temporary dwelling place, a tabernacle. When you get to Israel, he established a permanent home, if you will, a permanent temple in Israel where his presence was found at least until Israel decided to abandon the Lord and forsake him, and the temple was destroyed. But we now find, as we look into the future, we have the Lord once again tabernacling, tenting. But what we find at the end of the chapter 21, that he doesn't do it in a physical temple, he just does it through the presence of himself and the Son of God. They are the temple here back on earth for all eternity. So for us, I think, as we look at this, this becomes a foreshadowing of ultimately what God will do. He will dwell among his people for all eternity. It's interesting that, you know, we think right now the Lord indwells us, you know, which is theologically true. And so he lives among his people even today. But there's something unique as you look at what happens at the end of time where God comes down. And in many respects, it's much like what we find in Genesis chapter 1 when God created Adam and Eve. It says that he walked in the garden among them. I think it's hard for us to picture. I think it might even be hard for us to picture what's about to take place here in Jerusalem as well when God physically comes down in the form of a cloud and takes up presence where there's a visual component. You know, we don't have that visual component here, do we? You know, we know that he dwells within us. We, we are the temple of the Lord at this point. But that's not all there is left. And so you find this thread that goes through the Old Testament, everything from God living in a temporary dwelling place with Israel to the more permanent temple in Jerusalem to ultimately them tenting and tabernacling among their people for all eternity. Let's go ahead and look at what happens next here. And this is when the Lord's presence actually does that. He comes down in the form of a cloud and takes up residency in this temple. Now, if you remember, at this time, the Ark of the Covenant was in a temporary tent in the city of David. David had moved it there. It was just outside Jerusalem. But the tabernacle itself was at a place called Gibeon, a high place in Gibeon. So you basically have, you know, kind of the pieces spread out, if you will. And so that's what we have to collect. And so what Solomon does is he sends his priests out and they collect the tabernacle and all the, all the stuff that belonged with the tabernacle. He sends others to Gibeon to grab, I'm sorry, he sends people to Gibeon to grab the, the tabernacle. He sends people to the city of David to pick up the Ark of the Covenant. He brings all of that stuff back, transports all of that back to Jerusalem and he places it into the Holy of Holies. Look at verses 3 through 11. 
that all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent and the priests and the Levites brought it up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the Holy of Holies before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are still there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it happened that when the priests came from the Holy of Holies, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the elders and all Israel, the priests, all get together. They pack up the tabernacle and the furnishings. They pick up the ark and they transport all of that. Along the way, it says that they're, you know, all of Israel is there, kind of, making a parade. It says that they're sacrificing sheep and oxen all along the way, so many that couldn't be counted. It's somewhat reminiscent of when David moved the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if you remember the story. David, when he moved the Ark of the Covenant, the first attempt that they had made, they didn't do it correctly, and dudes reached out and touched the Ark and were killed. David regroups, repents, <laughs> and decides to finally move the, tabern- or move the Ark of the Covenant correctly and when he does that, it says that they stopped every six paces to make sacrifice. Every six pa- Now, we don't know if that's what happened here, but I'm, I'm probably of the opinion that Solomon probably followed David's example. And that might be why we see such a, a um, massive number of sacrifices being made. They likely stopped every so many feet or so many paces and offered sacrifices up again, maybe keeping in mind what had happened the first time when David had attempted this. But it was a massive celebration, a massive parade. They go all the way from these locations, which were probably, Gibeon I think was about 10 miles away. Um, City of David I think was 7 or 8 if I remember correctly. Um, so it was a fairly decent distance, but parades and celebration and sacrifices. And when they get to Jerusalem, the priests take the Ark of the Covenant all the way into the Holy of Holies and mentions that the poles were so long... The ark was probably put in, you know, sort of probably walked in straight, which means the poles probably went front to back. And that's what they meant by you could still see those poles when the doors of the Holy of Holy would be opened. You could see those poles sticking in there, even to the, you know, at this time. And uh, something remarkable then happens at that point. As soon as the priests exit the holy place, which means they went into the Holy of Holies and put the ark there, exited that, went into the holy place, which is the room outside of that. But as soon as they stepped outside of that, which means they went out the front doors, it says that the glory of the Lord came down in a cloud and filled the temple, so much so that the priests couldn't perform the duties that they were there to perform. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. 
It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, it doesn't tell us why they couldn't. I doubt it's because they couldn't see. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, as you start walking backwards after dropping the Ark of the Covenant off, and this massive cloud starts to come down, and you realize it's the presence of the Lord, I don't think I could minister either. I think I'd be trembling to some degree. Unable to perform the duties that I'm there to perform because of the awesomeness of God's presence coming down in a cloud. They may very well have remembered what God had said to Moses back during the Exodus 2 when the cloud came down on the mountain and told all of Israel, don't even allow them to come up and touch the mountain. (laughs) They may very well have remembered the Lord's warnings with that. This must have been some sight to see. Now, what's interesting is we have two accounts of this. We have both First Kings and we have Second Chronicles. And oftentimes, when you, if you want to get a better or fuller picture, you have to look at both accounts. So I want you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 5, if you would. Second Chronicles chapter 5 gives us a little bit more details of what was happening at this time. So Second Chronicles chapter 5, just verses 11 through 14. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions. Remember, they had the priests broken up into different divisions. They they were all sanctified. They were all participating. And all the Levitical uh, singers, Asaph, Haman, Jedatham, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar... And with them 120 priests, all blowing their trumpets. In unison, when the trumpets and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud." so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so the picture we get from 2 Chronicles isn't just that. Right as they walked out the front door, all of a sudden, the cloud came down. No, this was a huge event with singers and trumpet blowers and the priests all dressed in their garb and everything else. This was a huge celebration. Can you imagine 120 trumpets being blown at the same time? Massive choir singing all praising the Lord. And while you're doing that, you see this cloud descend. There is no way to misinterpret that. (laughs) You know, you can't just say, oh, that's interesting, a little cloud comes down. You know? This is a fairly significant event. Pretty remarkable. Now, one last thing in this section that we should note, it has to do with the contents of the ark. You notice that in verse 9, we read that there was nothing in the ark. Go back to verse 9 real quickly. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, you know, sometimes we just have a tendency to glance over little comments here and there. We don't really ask, why would the author include something like that? Why would he tell us, isn't it enough to say that the tabernacle is in, I mean, that the ark is in the Holy of Holies? Because that's where we would expect it to be. But he takes the extra time here to explain to us there's only one thing that's in the ark. And it happens to be the Ten Commandments. The stone tablets that the Lord... This is probably the second set, because Moses destroyed the first set. But he's got 
this comment here about the word of God ultimately being in the ark and being the only thing there. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We can go right to the place where the Lord commanded Moses this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the second set of temples, or second set of tablets. At that time the Lord said to me, Moses, cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. I love the fact that he's making Moses cut the stones out himself this time. And you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of Acadia wood and cut the two tablets of stone like the former ones and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. He even made him carry them up to the, up to the mountain. Probably weren't light. He wrote on the tablets like the former writing of the, ten, of the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of fire on the day of assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets into the ark which I made, and there they are as the Lord commanded me. Now why is this important? These tablets contain the Ten Commandments, which really was the foundation upon, what, upon which the Lord had built his covenant with Israel they were the core they were held accountable to those things it was what God was going to expect of them in his covenant relationship with them if they obeyed his law they would receive the blessings of the covenant if they disobeyed they wouldn't receive the blessings of the covenant so everything hinged not just on God's goodness and grace and mercy to them but their obedience to the very foundation of the covenant that he had established with them I think the fact that they were the only thing inside the ark indicates the singular importance of God's word when it comes to his covenant with his people. There is nothing more important than that. That is the standard by which he judges. That is the standard by which he blesses. There could have been other relics, other important things, you know. Don't we like to do that as a church? You know, we collect relics. You know, I think about, you know, with being raised Catholic, the Catholic church's goal for years of collecting these relics. They would travel all over you know, Europe and that to, to find relics. You know, oh, there's somebody that says they happen to have a sliver from the cross of Christ. They would go investigate it. You know? Or how about the chalice, you know, the, the chalice that you know, he used at the Last Supper. Not only that, but then there's the chalice that was used to collect his blood as he was bleeding on the cross. You know? Or what about when you go to the church in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem where he was born and right there on the floor, you know, it's a sacred spot, right where Jesus dropped out of Mary out of the floor. Now that's a sacred area. You know? We love our relics and all these important religious symbolic things, you know. Um, you know, some love to wear a cross around their neck, you know. Um, we've got a cross in the sanctuary here. I'm not calling it a relic, but it's symbolic. And there are purposes and reasons why we do those things. And even God himself gave us things, symbolic things, the bread and the cup, you know, baptism. So those are important but those are not as important as one thing. The Word of God. And that's what's in the ark. And so Solomon himself will remind the people about that in a second here as well. And so I think it's important that we see in this that what God specifically reminds them of is the importance of His Word, the foundation of the covenant. And that's the only thing in that covenant or in that, in that ark that was then placed into the Holy of Holies. Makes sense. 
So what's our takeaway with that? Well, I don't think we're all that different from Israel in that respect. The foundation of the Lord's covenant with Israel were the Ten Commandments, the Word, the Law. Our foundation is what? The Gospel. Same thing. The New Covenant, our covenant relationship with God the Father is built again on the foundation of the Gospel, the Word of God. It's central to us in our experience and enjoying the Lord's presence. Just like Israel, our obedience or our disobedience to His Word kind of impacts our relationship, does it not? I was looking at some passages like Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know that our obedience to the Lord is, is important because it, can I say it this way, regulates, if you will, our relationship with Him. You know, He's honored when we obey. He's dishonored when we don't. He's brought delight when we obey. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we disobey. So the Word of God is just as important to us as it was to Israel. That's one of the reasons why when we look at the church today and we look at the, the waning of the importance of doctrine, the study of God's Word, we see a church family here in the United States um, that is, I'll just say it, ignorant of the Word of God. I mean, when you look at all of the research, the very simple things of the, of the Scriptures... In fact, I think it was Barna or maybe Lifeway that did um, just did a little 10-point quiz of evangelicals. Ten very simple questions like, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Very simple things you'd learn as a kid in Sunday school. You know what the grade was? 20%. Most evangelicals only got two answers right out of ten. What is that? Tell us about how we value the Word. How can we obey when we don't know what the book says? Now, you can worship doctrine. We have had a conversation with somebody not too long ago about a particular denomination that, you know, loves doctrine and, and prides themselves on doctrine. But behaviorally, they don't pay nearly as much attention to applying it. So you can idolize, if you will, doctrine. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about loving the Word of God, diving into it. Katie and I just studied through you know, a couple of different psalms, one of which is Psalm chapter 1 that uses this picture of the righteous man who delights, who meditates day and night in God's Word. Why? Because he wants it in his heart. We look at Psalm chapter 19 where David just loves the Word of God. He pours that out and all that the Word of God does for us as individuals. And so I don't think it's, I don't think that this verse here where he simply reminds us, oh, by the way, the only thing in the ark were those tablets. I think that's significant because that becomes the foundation of our relationship with the Lord. It did for Israel and it does for us as well. That's one of the reasons why we choose to teach like we do. It's not that topical sermons and that are unimportant. We do that occasionally. We did that not too long ago. But what's most important is that we, we give you as much of this in the rawest form as possible because we love you and we want you to grow in your relationship with Christ. And if you don't know it, you can't do that. So I don't think, again, that it's unimportant that we're reminded that the only thing in that tavern, or in that ark the tablet or the tablets because they were the foundation 
of their relationship. What's interesting to me about that too is that I think even applies to individual churches. It applies to us as individual people, meaning we can't honor the Lord if we don't obey his word, which means we have to know his word. But think about churches as a whole. Think about the number of churches, the number of denominations, especially here in the United States, that have abandoned doctrine. And look at how ineffective they've become. You know, I'm reminded of the church in the book of Revelation where Jesus says, you know, I'm going to come and yank your candle stand out of the way. Basically what he's saying there is, I'm going to take my presence away from you. How many churches has that happened to? How many denominations in the United States that are now apostate? Because they all turn their back on the word of God. They're ineffective. They all think they're doing great things. But how much of it is really accomplishing what God asked us to accomplish? Anyway, I'm done diatribing on that. Let's move on to the last section of our text. It's where Solomon reflects now on the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. And this is a theme that we keep coming back to, and I don't apologize for it. It's what we see in the text. So Solomon now reflects on the Lord's faithfulness. After he sees this take place, and it's it's what motivated the words that we're about to see from Solomon. He sees the Lord's presence come down on on the temple. He's a part of this celebration, And it causes him to be reminded of at least two things, and we see that here. The first thing that he has in mind, I believe here, is the Lord's faithfulness to his promise to dwell with his people. Look at uh, verses 12 and 13. Solomon addresses the people here. He says this, um, Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. That's a reference all the way back to what he told Moses. The Lord would dwell in a thick cloud... I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Basically, as Solomon sees the cloud come down and the Lord take his presence up within the Holy of Holies, he's reminded that God had promised that he would dwell in a cloud, that he would make his presence among Israel. He said it at Mount Sinai. In fact, I want you to turn to uh, Exodus chapter 9. We're going to read a chunk of scripture here. I want you to see what Solomon is referencing one of the things I've been impressed with with Solomon is he, a number of places, we're going to see this when he, when he prays for the people, he had a sound understanding of God's word, which makes his forsaking the Lord in chapter 11 all that much more disturbing. But Solomon's language is often filled with scripture or references back to scripture. And this is, this is one of them here, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, we're going to jump down into... Um, verse 7 here. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, them, and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words to the people of the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them to, uh, today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He's going to come down in a cloud. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. 
No hand shall touch him, but he surely shall be stoned and shot through, whatever, or whether beast or man. He shall not live when the man's, or when the ram's horn sounds a long blast and they come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when, I, when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very, uh, very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. I want you to jump down into verses 18 through 21. Is that right? Of, uh, I think it's 18 through 21. Yeah, let's go ahead and read that as well. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down and warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish." And let the priests who came near the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, I believe this is what Solomon has in mind. He remembers the Lord talking to Moses and saying he's going to reveal himself in a thick cloud. God had revealed himself that way before in the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke as he led Israel through the wilderness and then protected them from behind. This was a, I'll say, a common way, if you will, for the Lord to reveal himself. And so Solomon has this in mind. And so as he's standing out in front of the temple... And he sees the Lord come down and this reminds him of what is said. This is ultimately praise for the Lord. And he remembers the Lord's faithfulness, his promise to come down and to do exactly what he said he would do. The other thing that comes to Solomon's mind is the Lord's faithfulness to his father David. I want you to look at verses um, 21 of 1 Kings chapter 8. Actually, let's let's read verses... um, let me find myself here. Actually, um, just jump down to verse 21 here real briefly with me. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out from the land of Egypt. Remember I told you before that Solomon was going to remind Israel what was in that ark that was in the, covenant, or was in the, um, the Holy of Holies. So he basically reminds them of the importance of God's word and what's sitting in that temple. So not only does he remember the Lord's promise to come down in a thick cloud to reveal his presence among the people, but he then reminds the people that where you see that cloud, inside there in the Holy of Holies, I placed the Ark of the Covenant which contains the Ten Commandments, the word of God as a reminder to them. So he's reminding them of God's promise to dwell among them and the importance of the word. The second thing that comes to mind to him, I alluded to this a moment ago, was the Lord's faithfulness to the promises he made to David. That's in verses 14 through 20. Go ahead and read those with me. Then the king faced about, means he turns around and looked at the people, and he blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, whom you will, or who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord had filled his word, fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So in those verses, what we find is Solomon reflecting on the fact that the Lord has fulfilled his promise to David. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this is that Solomon references the building of this house, I think it's five times, only mentions himself becoming king one time. Kind of gives you a picture of Solomon's humility at this point. So he reflects on the Lord's fulfillment of his promises to his father David by making him king, but more importantly, building this house. And so we find in Solomon's words as he turns to the people here, he's reflecting on the Lord's fulfillment of his promises. He had promised to to, uh, dwell with Israel, to build the temple, to put his name there in the city of Jerusalem and take up his residency there, and he did just that. He promised David that his son would build the temple, and he had done just that. So he reflects on the Lord's promises here. I think it's, I'll say it's difficult, it's not impossible to rank God's attributes, if you will, in terms of importance. We would say they're all important, right? But, I think if I had to pick one that I think is probably more important than all the others, it might be God's faithfulness. That would at least have to be near the top. The Bible's filled with God's promises. They'd all be meaningless if he wasn't faithful, right? Um, The foundation of our faith. It's not just the word of God, but God's faithfulness. Because what he says, we trust that he will do, right? The Lord's promise to Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he reminds Moses, the Lord can be trusted. He keeps his promises. One of my favorite New Testament verses comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2 where We read this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's in a passage that deals with, I believe, the rewards of the Christian. It says that if if we um, sort of maintain our faith, if you will, meaning if we remain faithful and obedient to him, there's blessings in that, but there's times where maybe we don't quite have the faith we need. And so he assures us that when that happens, don't worry, because Christ is faithful. He can't deny himself. And so we find Solomon as he's looking at this magnificent event that's taking place with all the pomp and circumstance and the priests and the music and the trumpets and all of that and the cloud of the Lord coming down and taking that, his place, he's reminded, this is the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. Not just to my father David, but to all of Israel to do exactly what he said he would do.
What's our ultimate takeaway from this? For me, I think it's the fact that God loves to dwell with his people. Think about this for a moment. We've already alluded to some of these things. God enjoys being with us, folks. He really does. He delights in it. Think about when he created Adam and Eve. We're told that he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Think about when he built the tabernacle with Israel. You know, he did that that he might dwell among his people. Why did he choose Jerusalem? Make that the headquarters of Israel, if you will. Why did he build the temple there and come down in a cloud and fill it? Why did he say that that would be his place where all people could come and search for him and see him there? It's because God enjoys being around his creation, his people. Why did he send Jesus Christ? As John says, to become flesh and to dwell among us. Why? He enjoys being around us, folks. He delights in being around us. Why does he indwell us with the Holy Spirit? Why did Peter say that we have become partakers of the divine nature, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit now, taking up residence with why? The Lord delights in being with us. Why will he allow us to dwell with him through all eternity? Why is it that he creates a new heavens and a new earth, comes down and lives with us here? Why isn't he a God like so many other gods who lives way up there while we live here? The Lord dwells among his people. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it throughout the New Testament. And we see it into eternity. And the story that we see here, this event, this historical event with Solomon the temple, I think is a great reminder of the fact that God loves to dwell among his people. And what I love about that too is he does it even when we're not perfect. Isn't that remarkable? He does it even when we're not perfect. So, I love this passage because, again, it just reminds me of so many different aspects of God, his fulfillment of his promises, but more importantly, the fact that God is a God who dwells among his people. Thank God for that.